Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Good morning, listeners. Good morning, Dr. Panel Beatart. Good morning, Dr. G-Spot. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Andre. And good morning, Dr. Robbie, who's sitting out in the green room. But boy, have we got a show for you. Look, do I always say that? You do, but we always deliver on it. We so do. I think it's okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, how are you, Dr. Panel Beatart? I wasn't expecting to be called on. I'm well, thank you, Epi. Very good to see all of you. Yeah, all of me. Uh, everyone. <laughs> Including my boot. I've, got, I've right. had an ankle operation, so I'm wearing a cam boot thingy. What's it? Uh, G-Spot, how are you? I'm great. Thank you, Nurse Epi. And you're rocking that boot. I think I'm going to see some diamantes on there. What hey. else are you going to rock? Yeah. With? Well, look, it's so funny because I can walk on it and I'm flying to Sydney this afternoon mm. for a conference. How really exciting. fabulous conference all on infectious diseases and immunisations. Amazing. And um, so I let... Um, Virgin know that I might need a little bit of tr- uh, help getting into my seat. Well, I so hope they deliver on Well, that. they've organised a wheelchair for me. <laughs> <laughs> and red carpet. And red carpet. Champagne. So that's I'll put some fangdangle things on my boots. Please do. Okay. And send us a selfie. We'll put it on the uh, radiotherapy socials. Indeed, indeed. So let's crack on to the, with the show because we could talk to these people forever. <laughs> but we'll start with Dr Andre. Lagresh, who is a cardiologist, who's got a string of letters after his name, like alphabetical letters, but one of them <laughs> that we always love to see is a PhD, because mm-hmm. Dr. G Spot's got one of them. I do. Uh, and Dr. Uh, Panel Beater's got one of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a work in progress. It is. Yeah. We've got a PhD. Anyway, so Andre is going to talk to us about his real passions in life, which is to do with um, it's really the sudden cardiac death or events registry that he runs. But before that, um, he's going to talk about COVID and how to reduce your chances of long COVID with exercise advice. Very important. Very important. Mm. But I'll just tell you a little bit about him. So he's he did his PhD at St Vincent's and at Melbourne Uni and four years of postdoctoral research at the University Hospital of Leuven. Leuven? Leuven. Yes. Leuven in <laughs> Belgium. And his clinical and research work focuses on the effect of exercise on the human heart. He studies the range of health from severe heart and lung disease to elite athletes, which is something that we are all in this team, we are all elite at. We are. Absolutely. Robbie's about to run a marathon, so he needs some advice. Um, Andre, he leads a a team of young researchers in sports cardiology and heads the National Centre for Sports Cardiology based at St Vincent's. He's pioneered novel imaging techniques uh, including exercise, cardiac magnetic resonance, resonance imaging, MRIs, and contrast echocardiography. He's more than 200 peer review publications. In fact, he's just a bloody brilliant man. And I have to say, the reason that I know about Andre is that a friend of mine said to him, me, I'd really like to have a heart attack so that I could see Andre more frequently. <laughs> 
He is supposed to be the loveliest, kindest cardiologist you could come across. Now, isn't that a big rap for someone? Anyway, thanks, Andre, for coming in to see us and speak with us today. Then, because I'm running on um, all sorts of notes here because I left my main notes at home. Thank you for uh, sharing that with the <laughs> listeners, Pam. <laughs> all that a, preparation. You've got to wing things at this place. <laughs> uh, so then we've got Dr. Robbie Gillies who is another amazing gentleman. He's a doctor and a passionate advocate for homeless and global poverty reduction. He devotes himself to the betterment of society, basically. He's won all of these awards. He's one of the 10 outstanding young persons of the world, not just Australia, the world. He's won the Young Australian of the Year for Victoria and he's got an OAM, Order of Australia Medal, and anyway, look, we could go on chatting about him forever with all these qualifications, and he's only 32. My goodness. He hasn't got a PhD. <laughs> he's still got time on his side, clearly. Still, and um, so he's going to talk to us about his work with homeless people, especially this initiative that he set up called Homey. Um, and I just can't wait to have a good chat with him. And not only that, he's got time to play a double bass, and he plays it in the Royal Melbourne Orchestra. Wow. What? Whilst running a marathon? Well, yeah, and he plans to run a marathon. There's no stopping My this goodness. man. <laughs> and he's just got engaged. Oh, life is so full for this man. Anyway, we'll be chatting with him after Dr. Andre, and that's Dr. Robbie Gillies. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, Head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. G Spot, who's always the font of knowledge, is going <laughs> to you. enlighten us about a paper that she's recently read about Zooming. So over to you, G Spot. Thank you so much, Nurse Effie Penn. I was going to ask you, how much have you been using Zoom recently as opposed to earlier in the pandemic? Just more socially. Yeah. But we use Teams a lot, Microsoft mm-hmm. Teams. But I do pay my Zoom account monthly. <laughs> I've been using that's, it that much. That's good. There's no criminality on your side. <laughs> Have you noticed any changes in how you looked at yourself on the uh, on the video camera versus like at the start of the pandemic versus now? Um, not. It's the only time you really look at yourself and you think, "Have mm. I got my makeup okay? Is my hair looking okay?" You know. Indeed. But, yeah. No, I no. I think I've gone off Zoom a little bit, Mm -hmm. but Teams, so I'm still seeing a lot of and having a lot of meetings on Teams Mm. and still using that medium. What what are you leading to? Well, I I love how you said there, um, EpiPen, I check if my makeup's okay, (laughs) how I'm looking, and it's it's very common for us to scrutinise our appearance uh, while we're on these teleconference platforms. And I'd love to tell you a bit more about Harriger et al.'s paper um, published in International Journal of Eating Disorders very recently uh, because I'm very interested in this phenomenon called Zoom dysmorphia. So basically, uh, scrutinising our appearance while we're on Zoom and maybe not being satisfied with our appearance. As you said, it's one of the real times that we actually have to look at ourselves for a long amount of time. It's true. 
And we've been finding that the people who are most dissatisfied, I should say Harriger et al. found, the people who are most dissatisfied whilst looking at their appearance on Zoom were more likely to use touch-up features, maybe like the, uh, the makeup feature, for example, <coughs> adjusting their camera angles, lighting, and time spent looking at themselves versus the other person they were most likely to have that kind of Zoom dysmorphia experience. Mm. And the reason I'm so interested in this research is because I've been part of a team doing it in Australia. So Harriger et al. study was in the States, but of course we've been using this technology a lot in Australia. Um, our research team, led by the delightful Tony Picus at Swinburne, we're running a fifth wave survey of ours. So we've already published quite a bit of research in this space. Um, shout out to Tony and the team. So we want to know how Australians are going on Zoom now. Are you like Nurse EpiPen and checking out your makeup still? Maybe you've turned your camera off. Maybe you don't care and you're there in your, your underpants. I don't know. But we want to know. <laughs> so please check out our survey by going to the link and we'll put this in Radiotherapy Socials. It's bit.ly forward slash COVID hyphen body image five. As I said, we're going to put that in the socials for Radiotherapy. And I also just wanted to let you know, Nurse EpiPen, yeah. I reckon we've got two whole listeners today. Yeah. My mum. Yeah. But also Professor Terry O'Brien, oh, who tweeted out. us, one of our fave guests from earlier in the year. He's listening in too. So if you're listening in, Terry, please tweet us. <laughs> you said you would. Um, but isn't it exciting? We've doubled our listening audience today. <gasps> that is so exciting. And he's become a groupie. <laughs> I'm uh, Yes, I will hashtag groupie Terry. Uh, let's get that trending, folks, on radiotherapy socials. Yeah, great. I did put a post up on my so personal social. You did a very good job. Yeah, and <laughs> plugged it as hard as I could uh, to Scabulous I'm, Show. Like, why, why doesn't everyone who's listening say that they're listening on social so we know that you're out there and loving the show? Indeed, indeed. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Dr Andre, you have got some expertise in giving advice for people post-COVID and maybe reducing their chances of long COVID. Is that, have I got that correct? Yeah, perhaps. I, I do have some experience and it's, it's, it's really interesting, the post-COVID syndrome, because I think many doctors' initial reaction is, and it's hard for it not to be then sort of transferred back to the patient, is, is um, you know, the, the initial thing is, oh, no, because it is very real symptoms, um, very real questions and lots of them, but very few answers. And so it's, it's a difficult situation. Obviously, as a doctor, you love a situation where you've got a quick answer or you've got a therapy and you can, and you can give that, whereas it's, it's really complex with, um, with long COVID. And I was recently at an international conference that unfortunately was on Zoom and I didn't know about touch-up features, which is a shame because <laughs> it was at three in the morning and I could have done with every touch-up so feature So we'll see you with lipstick on now, Andre. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, um, but it was, it was just interesting to get a worldwide perspective because essentially everyone on the panel was, had really few answers. And um, the... We, in our lab, have sort of looked at it from an exercise perspective. I mean, the features that we consistently see are, 
um, exercise intolerance, more so even fatigue and post-exercise fatigue. So people might say that their exercise is is reduced a little bit, but then they feel like they're um, it feels like it's taking them days and days and days to recover. Uh, and then this profound fatigue, sometimes some muscle soreness, and then patients complain of, of brain fog and just a generalised sense of lack of energy. They, they all put together sort of sound um, non-specific, but they can be completely debilitating. And then the frustration from a doctor's point of view is we don't have um, any clear diagnostic criteria and we don't have any clear mechanisms mm. So, you know, it can be frustrating, and I think that that frustration can be imparted back on the patient. And also, because there's few answers, they can be left with the feeling that it's all in their head, and the doctor can sort of, in some ways, be, be partly responsible for that. So I think what, what is clear from the international literature is that it, and our experience is that it's not in people's heads. It's a very real thing. We've had the luxury, we're running a sort of prospective study in young elite athletes, and we've had a few of those patients develop COVID and then develop this sort of, if you like, long COVID. And we've been able to measure their exercise capacity with a perfect baseline. And, and we can measure a very clear and sometimes quite profound reduction in their exercise capacity. But again, the problem is it's very hard to put our finger on exactly what that is. We, we think about exercise capacity as, as kind of the components of lungs, pump, you know, the heart getting it to the muscles, and then the blood and the muscles. And part of that we can assess really clearly. And it's not a problem with the lungs. It's not a problem with the um, oxygen getting in. It's actually rarely a problem of the pump. Um, so the heart and you mentioned earlier we use exercise MRI, which is the most accurate way of assessing heart function, and it's perfectly normal. We suspect, and a lot of the literature and experiences going this way, is that there's something um, kind of inflammatory at the skeletal muscle end that is interfering with the oxygen being taken up, and this contributes both to the exercise um, intolerance and also this sense of fatigue. It's like there's a chronic inflammation um, going on. But... All of that's well and good. How do people actually deal with it? And one of, the, and this now becomes very anecdotal, but one of the things that I find is that there's often people that are quite high achieving run into issues, and part of that is because of the, the very thing that makes them high achieving, which is that they really go at things full on. So they'll They'll have a red-hot dip at exercise training and then feel terrible, so then they won't do it for four days or a week, and then they'll try the same thing again. And that head-butting and the, and the negative feedback becomes kind of a vicious circle. So the, the two, the mainstays of treatment that I talk about is, one, consistency, so trying to get something done every day, and secondly, to begin with, resetting your expectations completely so that every single training session, and this can apply you know, to listeners, you don't have to be, this doesn't have to be an athletic context, but every one of your activities, finishing it thinking, I could have done that four or five times over. It's the opposite of how type A personalities and athletes, um, you define as an athlete your your. Um, wanting to leave it all on the track using the cliche, whereas here's a situation where you want to finish saying, I could have done that time and time again. And 
then people still, despite doing not so much, will feel this fatigue afterwards. But once that becomes manageable and stable, then then you can start stepping it up. And it's really a matter of taking a massive step back, getting some consistency and building up. Great advice. Really helpful. I think that's fabulous because so many people want to know what they can do to, and why can't they speed up the process and get through this long COVID issue. Um, and then let's move into something that you're super-duper-duper passionate about, and that's these sudden cardiac events where people die. So uh, to, I'm sure you've got lots of patient stories, but one is a typical one where a young person playing football collapses on the football ground, dies instantly. Now, you know, and there's some, some interesting syndromes that are associated with this kind of episode and people know about them, but... Are they on the increase and how can we identify them? And the acronym is HOKUM and you might like to talk about that. So, yeah, go, go tell us about your registry and database and what you're doing to collect information on people that have these sudden cardiac deaths. So there's a lot of good questions in there. So sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death. Um, cardiac arrest is when... Uh, the heart suddenly goes into usually a very, very fast rhythm and then stops. Um, and it's, it's got an extremely high fatality rate. Most, about 90% of people who have a cardiac arrest die as a result of that. Something that we really want to alter those, those statistics clearly. But the other thing is that for some reason, because um, it's a good question, has this been increasing? So... In Victoria, we set up a registry from 2018 called the End UCD um, Registry, End Unexplained Cardiac Death. And in Victoria, there's um, 750 or very, very much close to 750 per year over the last three years that have a cardiac arrest, of which about 450 are due to a cardiac cause. Um, and again, we've shown that of those cardiac arrests, around about 9 in 10 of those people die because of the cardiac arrest. And there's, there's, a, there's a number of causes by which young people have a cardiac arrest. To get, let me put that in some context, context as well, because 450 in Victoria is around about three times as many people under the age of 50 die due to, due to motor vehicle accidents. And, you know, everyone knows Greg the stop sign and seen the advertisements and, and people are almost always shocked to learn that the most common reason for men and women, more so men, but men and women, uh, to die under the age of 50 is due to a sudden cardiac death or sudden cardiac arrest. And so it's a major thing, and yet for some reason it's not been well publicised and has led to this um, kind of concept that it's that it's increasing uh, over recent times. And one of the interesting things about our... Um, registry, which was started in 2018, so pre-pandemic, uh, is that there's been a lot of interest in whether either COVID or vaccinations have increased the rate of, of um, cardiac arrest. And as a as a you know as a bit of a duller right there is that we're not seeing any hint of that at all. Yet uh, international media has sort of picked up and and trying to create this picture that, one, the registry was started to track this uh, thing, and, and secondly, that, that you know, there's some sort of straight state conspiracy that, that, um, that 
uh, you know, we're involved in this mechanism of, of tracking people during... Uh, due to vaccination deaths. We just are not, and we're not seeing that. It's, it's interesting because just by, by chance, we set it up at the perfect time to get a couple of years of data, then get essentially a year of COVID data, and now post-vaccination. And in Victoria, of course, we have very high rates, but we're not seeing a signal, not even, not even a hint of a, of a signal. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, it is very interesting brings us back to the whole thing which is why we started it and what I'm passionate about is that this is something that flies under the radar people are shocked um, yet when you speak to people often people know of someone or know of someone who knows someone who who has died suddenly under the age of 50 um, yeah. yeah so and, and just I've been doing some research and also have a ICU training so I've done some cardiology. And these aren't heart attacks. We're not talking about myocardial infarctions. These are deaths and your heart stops because it's gone on into ventricular fibrillation or these funny rhythms that have collapsed, made a person collapse, and they can then not do very well. So broadly, there's, I, w- I would say there's four causes. There's, there's kind of the electrics, the muscle the arteries, and then unknown, which I'll come back to. But, you know, you can have a problem with the electrics and the, and the little channels, sort of iron channels in the heart, and that can cause heart rhythm problems. You can have problems with the heart muscle, things like you mentioned before, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and things that cause weakness or thickening of the heart muscle. The most common cause, particularly after the age of 30, is in fact a heart attack. So the arteries being blocked and suddenly causing, um, you know, causing arrhythmias in the heart to stop. Uh, and then about 40% of people who die under the age of 50, we have no idea why they died even after an autopsy. That's often referred to as unexplained cardiac death. And again, you know, for the most common cause, it's incredibly frustrating and there's no more difficult to consult than sitting with a bereaved family who have lost a, you know, a son, daughter, brother, sister and, and saying we have no idea why, why they died. And that's, that's one of the main reasons for the registry. There's a lot of interest in genetics, in better understanding these conditions so that as the very first step to preventing, you know, to making a dent on this problem would be understanding it. And, you know, there's nearly half the cases and we sit there and say, we don't know what happened. That's very frustrating, very sad for family members. And how would you, if you're sort of at a sports ground or somewhere at a public event, how what, what does a patient present like? How could we pick up that a person's having a, a bad episode that could lead to death? So it's um, in advance of them having an arrest. So the actual cardiac arrest is, is quite dramatic. It just looks like the person has, um, has fainted, if you like. And often, actually, there's quite a delay because there's often... Uh, an impression of breathing and a number of things. There's quite some science in recognising because the treatment of a cardiac arrest is to get in and start CPR as soon as possible and to get a defibrillator to the person as soon as possible. And there's some really good initiatives like, for example, Ambulance Victoria, who are national leaders in this space. They've now equipped um, the fire service to have defibrillators and, and there's a push to try to get the police to also have to... Because 
interestingly, they're often the first to attend. So basically, we need mechanisms to get defibrillate. We need to get CPR started straight away, and defibrillators, you know, preferably time is it affects massively the chances, but within four or five minutes, and then the survival rates are actually reasonable. So they're key things. The other. The other thing that's absolutely key is to prevent the cardiac arrest to begin with, and that's where the science is really only just beginning. There's, there's, kind of, there's a great analogy which I'll just run through. I've heard of you know, people, these two people walking down the river and there's, and there's um, people drowning, or there's someone drowning, so they jump in and save them. Walk up the river, someone's drowning, they jump in and save them. Someone's drowning, one person jumps in, the other one starts running up the river and they go, hey, hey what are you doing? They said, well... All these people are drowning, we've got to find out why. So we, we sort of want to have a policy where, one, we get in and save people and have the best possible resuscitation, defibrillators, everything we can do. But simultaneously, we need researchers running up the river and trying to understand the cause, trying to work out these 50% or 40% we don't understand, trying to understand... Because even heart attacks, which we think we understand, yet... You know, for example, Shane Warne, if I had seen Shane Warne the week before he died, I don't think I would have picked it. You know, the majority of people, and this is another thing in our registry, is that nearly three quarters of the people who have a heart attack have zero or one risk factor. So they're not the people who we would see and say, ah, you're a heart attack waiting to happen. They are unexplained, even though it's a heart attack, they're unexplained in the sense that we don't understand why they versus someone else have had a heart attack. So there's so much for us to understand in the middle-aged and younger person and, and trying to prevent people from having cardiac arrest. Mm. Um, can I just support what you said about getting in and doing something straight away so we don't muck around trying to find a pulse anymore? You get in there and if they're not breathing or they're not talking straight away start pumping on their chest even make it up if you don't know how to do it but more importantly how important it is and it's our civil responsibility to do some first aid and there are fabulous courses that you can google at st john's ambulance and uh, you know i think we need to know about this because this is a life you could save absolutely there's some really good research that where where people have applied CPR in the wrong situation. And the worst thing that happens is the person wakes up and says, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, I think the worst case was someone got a slap, you know. But um, on the other hand, you, you could save a life. And, and prompt CPR makes a huge difference. It's basically buying time until a defibrillator comes. Yes, yeah. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Now we are going to talk about things um, philanthropic and social Social entrepreneur, Rob. I, I feel like Robbie covers all areas really in life. And, <laughs> yeah. and I thank Robbie so much for joining us this morning because it sounds like you're a very busy person. Oh, thank you. No, I, I'm just lazing around today. It's all oh, good. Yeah, well, lazing around lazing doing around. a radio interview. We'll sure. The dog. Oh, Maybe good. a bit of marathon training this afternoon. <laughs> Um, Robbie, I just wanted to ask, how did you get into medicine first up? I would like to hear more about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, well, I always wanted to be a psychologist, actually. Growing up, I just thought there's 
what could be better than just talking to people for a living? I love the idea of the leather couch and just, you know, being there and just chatting all day. That's what my practice looks like. I'm just there smoking a pipe and they're lying down and I'm just sleeping, really. Channeling Freud. Exactly, exactly. Well, yeah, I did full circles. I mean, I'm about to graduate as a psychiatrist, so maybe I'll get there in the end for that vision. But that's all I wanted in in high school. I loved psychology. I also loved science. I, Mm. I did love chemistry and physics and... um, uh, my brother did medicine before me, so I knew sort of what the course was about yeah. and what it looked like. Um, but to be honest, I just surprised myself and did a lot better than I genuinely thought I would in, in VCE. And everyone said to me, well, you love psychology. Why don't you become a psychiatrist? And um, I didn't know the difference between the two. And I thought, yeah, why not? Sounds good. What and... is the difference, Robin? <laughs> well, there is no difference. No. Okay. Oh, prescribing. Yeah, prescribing. prescribing. No, sure. there, is a, there is a difference. But a lot of psychiatrists end up doing a lot of therapeutic work mm-hmm. and a lot of the talking therapy and mm-hmm. get a lot of um, fulfillment out of that and make a career out of that. And um, to, to some degree, that's what psychologists do as well. So mm-hmm. for some people, there's um, not a huge amount of difference. But the, the big difference, obviously, is that psychiatrists did go to medical school um, and are specialists in medicine. And there's a huge overlap between the mind and the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, you know, um, so many different branches within psychiatry where it's uh, helping people who have severe physical conditions, mm-hmm. physical conditions causing psychiatric conditions, mm-hmm. servicing hospitals, prescribing medicines for biological mental illness. So, yeah. Fantastic. But anyway, so, yeah. I um I just uh, went into medicine thinking maybe I'll do psychiatry and then here I am. <laughs> uh, so it sounds like Robbie, you've always really enjoyed speaking with people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just like you're doing today, hopefully. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I was just wondering, did you have any role models growing up in that field of psychology slash psychiatry? Um, oh, uh, not not really, actually. <laughs> not really, no. Um, so people I had, can look I had, up to you. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, who are my role models? Um, uh, I don't know, Fred Hollows. I, I actually, a lot of, like, scientific Richard Dawkins, yeah. um, Albert Einstein, a bit cliche, but I always loved reading uh, his his works as, when I was younger. But, yeah, no psychologist, actually. I mean, maybe Freud. I didn't know a lot about Freud, but... Yeah, um, a very polarising person yeah. in our community. Yeah, he can be. <laughs> And tell us more about your um, social entrepreneurial work. That sounds like it sounded, sorry, that sounds like it started at a young age as well from what I've read about you. Yeah, yeah. Um, So when I was was in medical school, I took a little bit of a a scenic route through medical school. I took some years off and (laughs) took opportunities to do more research, but um, I was a uni student for ages and I found that I had heaps of time on my hands, you know, the long summer holidays, which are fantastic, and, um, you know, your weekends when you're not working. So uh, I ended up just getting involved in a lot of community projects. I helped out at some soup kitchens in in Melbourne with St Vinnie's, uh, did some, um, yeah, just work within the homelessness community. And I had a few friends who'd started a Facebook page that was called Homelessness of Melbourne. And it was based off Humans of New York mm-hmm. and what my friends and I ended up joining them. And what, what we did was we went around the streets of Melbourne and just met people um, who were experiencing homelessness, 
heard a little bit about their stories, you know. Um, probably one in two people that we approached was happy to share and happy to have a chat. Mm. About half weren't, and that was completely fine, you know. We were just there to chat, uh, and we had no expectation from them from the outset that we'd then share their story. But after getting to know them, we asked, mm. and, and a few people were happy for us to indeed, yeah, publish their story mm. and, and get the message out there about their life, how they um, ended up experiencing homelessness, um, just to sort of humanise the issue and destigmatise it there's a lot of misconceptions about homelessness and mm. um yeah that's just the way we got started fantastic no, but, uh, um were you surprised by some of the people that were homeless the oh, people yeah, that had fallen on hard times very that... surprised very mm. surprised i think uh, i myself definitely held a lot of the misconceptions that are common throughout mm. the community um and that's essentially why we were so motivated to share these stories because Talking to people who experienced were experiencing homelessness just changed our minds about the issue, mm-hmm. um, really humanised the issue for us. Uh, and that's, yeah, I guess why we're so motivated to put the content out there in the first Amazing. place. Are there any stories that stand out to you in particular, if you're able to share? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I mean, there's heaps just come mm. flooding back, but uh, I guess I could talk about general themes, uh, mm. you know, that, I mean, and they're not, uh, they're not heartwarming topics, but, yeah. yeah, you know, people who are experiencing severe domestic violence mm. and are fleeing. Um, homelessness um, in Melbourne can be a very transient position for people. Mm. It can be that they've fallen on hard times. Mm. Um, you know, uh, things haven't aligned and safety nets haven't come through and maybe they're awaiting for Centrelink payments or mm. they're dislocated from family, they're interstate or they're from overseas. They don't have very robust support networks. Um, and it just... Uh, sort of rock bottom um, in their life uh, for a transient period. But met a lot of people who um, were just very uh, in the the middle of a lot of of chaos and, um, yeah, like heartache and and difficulty, but were taking... Uh, real steps to to get themselves out and we're just waiting for a few things to come through. Yeah. Might have been in, um, you know, ha- crisis housing. Mm-hmm. We're waiting for more secure housing to become available. We're on wait lists. Um, and we're actually, a lot of people um, might couch surf or live yeah. in cars and you might meet them on the streets, but they actually um, aren't living on the streets. Mm-hmm. That's another misconception about homelessness in Australia is that it's people living on the streets. Mm-hmm. It's just a small percentage of people who live on the streets. A lot of yeah. it's un stable housing and, um, yeah, supported accommodation. Yeah, I mean, it really sounds like anyone can be impacted by homelessness given a a particularly bad set of circumstances. Yeah, I think that really rung true for us, yeah, Yeah. from what we saw. And can you tell us more about Homie? Yeah, yeah, so just um, being more involved with the um, homelessness, the issue Mm -hmm. of homelessness and and the community and doing some outreach through established Mm organisations, we sort of detected what we thought could be a bit of a service gap Um, getting to know people who are experiencing homelessness, uh, time and time again, people would be very, very grateful and mm. saying it, it is fantastic that there are the soup kitchens and that yeah. there's clothes when we need them. But if I'm being honest, you know, these are secondhand clothes and they're, they don't always fit me. Um, I'm getting them from you, Robbie, and it's midnight and we're under a bridge and there's just mm. something that's not particularly dignified. I think the service was servicing a real need, but sometimes um, the, the felt impact of the service was that it wasn't 
terribly dignified. Mm-hmm. And and there's something about receiving, say, secondhand clothes that um, implies that, I don't know, maybe that, why can't it be first-hand clothes, you know? Why can't mm-hmm. someone experiencing homelessness be shopping in a shopping centre and getting a, you know, a... a a, a true experience like so many other people do of picking out clothes that fit them, that are new, that they can feel good about, that they want to own, that they can be proud of, that they can maintain and that they can have, you know? Um, so no one was ungrateful, but we mm. did detect that maybe um, that there was a service that could exist that didn't exist. Uh, and what we were imagining was homey. Um, so yeah, we, we just did a little bit of fundraising. Uh, Can and you tell us quickly what Homey stands for? Robin? Yeah, yeah. So Homey stands for Homelessness of Melbourne Incorporated Enterprise. So it I was, love it. Yeah, yeah. So it's an acronym, and it was um, it, it was sort of because we were able to fundraise from our Homelessness of Melbourne Facebook page it just became an offshoot of that. So it was the incorporated enterprise. It became a a charity organisation based off our Homelessness of Melbourne um, social media. So that was how we came up with the name, Homie. Uh, And, yeah, what is Homie? So essentially it's a a fashion label and clothing shop uh, in Fitzroy Mm -hmm. and – but – it's different to any other clothing shop that you might have shopped at or know of in that it's underwritten by a not-for-profit constitution. So it is a full charity, mm-hmm. and that's what makes it a social enterprise. So we're a charity, fully not-for-profit, uh, that raises revenue and funds through commerce. So we sort of try to harness capitalism and and run a, a fully a fully functioning business, mm-hmm. but instead of profits going to shareholders or directors, it's actually uh, it's owned by the community. It, it, the shop is owned by the community, and all of the profit goes back into um, sustaining our social impact projects. Amazing. Yeah, if that makes sense, it's a bit Absolutely. of a mouth, mouthful. <laughs> No seppy pen, and, go for it. Um, the cost of the clothes, so the homeless yep. people, do they like to be called homeless people or no, people? What, no. What's the a better term? Just the person experiencing homelessness. Yes. I think reflects that it is a transient state, you know, for so many people. Um, for some people it's not, but often it is. And, yeah, people aren't defined by homelessness. Yeah. So they're just the person experiencing homelessness. And do they buy the clothing? No. So what we do, it will, I mean, they can, of course, um, they're free to shop, but um, we also run what we call VIP shopping days. And we've almost run a hundred since we wow. started. And we've almost had about 2000 people through on our VIP shopping days. We've been going I'll for be about eight next years. Time. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> um, so yeah, we partner with different services that help people experiencing homelessness. You know, it might be like launch housing or, or Vinnie's or, you know, mm-hmm. heaps of different services. Um, and they invite their clients clients in to shop for free. So we closed the shop for a day most months. It was difficult during COVID. We had to do some creative um, getting, you know, care packages out to people. But when we're able to and we're not in lockdown, the store, the physical shop will close to the general public and we'll invite in people who are clients of a homelessness service. They'll shop for free. They can take you know, um, free items of clothing get fitted properly. Um, there's food, there's, you know, guest speakers. It's a very inclusive event. It's a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, it's, it gets to that dignified shopping Mm -hmm. experience and, and treating people like people, you know, and including them, um, in, in Melbourne. So Robbie, do you know the song rolling with the homies? (laughs) 
rolling with the homies. Who's it by? I think it's Coolio, but I wondered if you had it playing in your stores because I, it's a bit of a 90s song, that Yeah, one. right, yeah. Uh, if we don't, we should get it on for sure. I, I really recommend you should yeah, do nice. that. Yeah. So tell us more about the programs that um, Homie runs to help yeah. people who are experiencing homelessness. I, I guess, you know... I've told you a little bit about how we started. Our vision was always to help people have a dignified shopping experience. I think after a few, you know, once we got going, we realised that there was more we could do as well. And clothing is fantastic and it does service a need and we found a niche way to do that, which people loved. Um, But we also realised that it wasn't creating pathways out of homelessness, Mm. so to speak. Um, So what we figured was that we also, uh, you know, we have this shop and we employ people. Why can't we employ people? people who are ready to take the next step in life and mm-hmm. transition permanently out of homelessness, mm-hmm. people who are ready to, um, you know, get an education who might have a special interest in retail, we can support them. We work with heaps of organisations that can also support people in a more comprehensive social mm-hmm. sort of way mm-hmm. and we can provide training and then we can help people get on their feet. We can mm-hmm. provide a little community, we can give them a reference, we can train them up and then they can go off and pursue their own career in retail. So we started doing that and it's called our Pathway Project. So we have 10 interns each year who come to us, referred through organisations that we know well, who work with young people experiencing homelessness. Um, it's, it's about a year-long program um, from start to finish. There's training involved and at the end of it, people graduate with a certificate for in retail management. And then, you know, it's not like you, you don't want to stay at home forever and <laughs> you want to go <laughs> I off. I bet some you, of them do. Some, some people do and we're very, we love having people stay around at homey, but you know, so many people want to go and work at Nike. Like, yeah, sounds even better. Let's do that. So, you know, we've partnered with Nike and we can place people in Nike Amazing. stores. And, and there are so many people now who have graduated through the program mm-hmm. and are off working at Nike and are the best salespeople at Nike. Like, we get feedback <laughs> that they are the most enthusiastic people on the floor. They're, like, singing and dancing and they just love their job and they outsell other people. And so, you know, yeah. Nike and other people that we partner with, they love it, the program. Um, it's, it's not all roses, you know, like, uh, there's... Um, some people, um, it's, it's difficult as well, mm-hmm. obviously. So we're there to support people as well. Mm-hmm. And when they graduate into the workforce, we can provide a little bit of wraparound care sure. and just help people if they do fall on hard times yeah. so that they're not just abandoned again. And you know. yes. So, um, yeah, it's, we call it like a sort of like a high-touch service. We like to think of it as high impact. It's not huge volume of impact. You know, mm-hmm. we're still a small organisation. Yeah. We help 10 people a year um, and we do it in a really significant way. We hope you know yeah. get people a leg up and and Indeed. yeah i can imagine you would have much more interest than the 10 spots that you have oh yeah yeah absolutely we'd love to continue expanding you know um we've got fantastic directors on our board mm. and we do we want to make sure everything grows sustainably as well and we don't get too ahead of ourselves so yeah. um yeah we're just being sensible and and but we would love to continue expanding of course yeah, yeah hopefully on the cards, on the horizon. How long has Pathway Project been going? I'm just wondering about like long-term follow-up yeah, of these folks. It's been going for ages, almost since we start, started, so from 2015. And, yeah, we've got an alumnus program and we do catch-ups all the time. There's like a little, you know... Tell me there's a Facebook there's group a for Facebook the alumni. There's a Facebook group Good. and, you know, people post opportunities for each other. It's a little bit of an online community. Lots of people yeah. know each other and have very strong friendships. Sometimes, you know, we won't see people for a few years and they'll just be off 
off there doing their thing and that's great <laughs> and we you know even love that and then they would drop back in and get back in touch and it's a very you know get get what you like from it contribute what you like but there's definitely a big community that's ever expanding yeah. at homey Amazing. This is such terrific work, Robbie. Is there any shout-outs you want to do from the homie crew? From the homie crew? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just say that I'm a, I'm a, a doctor, so I, I can't take any credit at all. For you know, I was there at the beginning. I'm still a, a director, but I don't do a lot on the ground. We just have such a fantastic team and just credit to everyone who pours their heart and soul into homie and loves what they do. You know, it's just such a fantastic team, so kudos to everyone there. Um, but, yeah our community supporters as well. Mm-hmm. People sometimes say to me, how can I contribute? Like, can I donate? And I say, you don't have to, you know, we're a modern charity. We're a social enterprise. Mm-hmm. Buy a shirt, jump online. Like you, I you really don't liked donate your hoodies. to us. I was yeah, at hoodies. our hoodies. Yeah. We just did a campaign with Tommy Little. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, the comedian. That's great. That yeah, is yeah, very yeah, funny. Yeah, Shout yeah. out to Tommy. Tommy, thanks, yes. Tommy. Tommy's a legend. Um, <laughs> he loves Homie and does a lot of promotion. Oh, Sometimes wears the hoodie on, on the project and Fantastic. stuff. But yeah, we got some great hoodies. The website's pretty easy to remember. It's yeah. homie.com.au. Uh, that's also our social media handles. Yeah. So just uh, H-O-M-I-E dot com dot A-U. We'll add them to our radiotherapy yeah, socials. Amazing. You'll get huge traffic. So, yeah, just buy a shirt. I mean, that's what I... You don't need to donate. And they're great for presents as well, I think, you know, exactly. if you don't know what to get people for Christmas. Oh. Is it is it too far ahead to be thinking Not about Christmas all. presents? Not at all. And it is very cold, isn't it, Robbie? <laughs> it so is, the, yeah. the hoodies could come in very handy. <laughs> I reckon. I've got a couple. <laughs> and you mentioned your medical career there, yeah. Robbie. I did want to ask more about that. Yeah. You said that you're finishing up psychiatry training. Yeah, What's it. next for you? Um, so I'll be graduating as a child and adolescent psychiatrist in Fantastic. six months' time. So I've got a special interest in neurodevelopmental conditions. Mm-hmm. So that's autism, that's ADHD. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, and, and infant mental health. Could you believe it? Yes. Uh, young people, you know, mental health yeah. issues affect people of all, all ages of life. Um, and I'm particularly interested in infant mental health but of course that's parent mental health and yeah. family mental health as well um so yeah that's that's what's on the cards for me just clinical work and enjoying it and yeah <laughs> i don't i don't know actually too much where i'll be in a year you'll have to come back on our show and give us an okay, update i'll give you an update yeah we'll do <laughs> and we'll maybe do. this is an obvious question robbie yeah. but why child and adolescent mental health in particular um yeah, oh, heaps of reasons. I, you know, it's. I think it's the same reasons that I've uh, dedicated my philanthropic work towards young people experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. So, Home is an organisation focused on youth homelessness. Just for me, um, uh, it, seeing people at a, at a difficult point in their development overcome a challenge and then build a life and go down a completely different path is just something that's really rewarding uh, and interesting for me, I think. Um, trying to make a difference in someone's life where, yeah, it can just change the rest of their life. That early, you know, prevention is the best cause sort of thing, I think, mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Also just, you know, I love working with families. I love working with parents. Um, and I really love working with kids that just, you know, they're, they're they're young and they're full of energy and they can be silly. Um, and I think the people that work with kids and families also tend to be a little bit a little bit silly, a little bit optimistic, and they're just fun to work with. So it's just wall-to-wall, you know, well, it's not wall-to-wall fun. It's serious work, but it's very enjoyable and very rewarding work and just love it. Fantastic, Robbie. Yeah. yeah. Fabulous. 
You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now we go to the um, the funnest part of the session today <laughs> is we do a joke. And, uh, we geez. use the term joke loosely, don't we, Nurse Abby? <laughs> well, what's your yeah, dad joke? Wet Very jokes. much so. Yeah. Go ahead. What's <laughs> okay. today's joke? All right. Oh, gosh. And it's my phone has just decided to go off. Here we go. Okay. So doing rounds, a new nurse couldn't help overhearing the surgeon yelling, typhoid, tetanus, measles. And the nurse asked their colleague, why does he keep doing that? What do you guys think? Robbie? <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, because he likes to call the shots around here. Oh! oh. oh. <laughs> Groan! I'm going to take that to my um, immunisation conference That's, next week. Please do, this Nurse week. EpiPen. And a reminder to everyone to get their COVID-19 vaccines, their flu vaccines and any other vaccines that they require. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Yeah. We promote them on this show. I <laughs> I actually saw Steve Jane recently and he reminded us of the terrible joke we did with him. Oh, good. So yeah. um, it, this uh, segment continues on. Yeah, indeed. It's it good. Does. We'll have a joke award. But, and the, and the that guests will not can... win it. But... <laughs> so um, in wrapping up today, indeed. I just really wanted to thank um, you, G-Spot. Thank you so much, Nurse Epiphan. It's always a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you too. And um, Dr. Panel Peter, yep, he's, and I'm not going to spring him for a comment. Dr. <laughs> Andre, who's just always saving lives and being an absolute darling to all his patients and staff and friends and team. <laughs> and his take, my takeaway take messages from his um, visit today is. Don't push yourself too much after COVID. Just steady yeah, as you go. Just not go hard or go home. Yeah. Take yeah. it easy. Take just incremental. Exactly. Um, and first aid courses. And, you know, if you do see somebody collapse, have a go. Yep. And um, and then Dr. Robbie, his homeless website, and kindness to people on hard times. I think that's, you know, that's my takeaway message from your I'm visit. I'm going today. to the homey store. Me too. Definitely. Me too. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.